Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you listening for the first time, this podcast is a project created by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution. Resolutions podcast provides engaging conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm one of your hosts. I am a divorce and family mediator and the founder of Dovetail Conflict Resolution in Chicago, Illinois. This podcast is a way for us at the ABA to celebrate our program sponsors and thank them for their support over the years. Today, I am sitting down with an impressive group of neutrals who are ready to share their experience in developing a career in ADR. We will speak with Tom Hanrahan, an arbitrator and mediator with TP Hanrahan Dispute Solutions in Manhattan Beach, California. Tom has distinguished credentials, including being fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and member of the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. Elizabeth Betty Morgan is an arbitrator and mediator with the Morgan Law Firm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She has extensive experience in trademark and intellectual property, including being a mediator for the World Intellectual Property Organization and as a public arbitrator and panel chair for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Theo Chang, an arbitrator and mediator with the ADR office of Theo Chang in Princeton Junction, New Jersey. Theo is the president of the Justice Garibaldi ADR in of court and was named 2020 James B. Boski ADR Practitioner of the Year. And Julie Walker, an arbitrator with Ireland Stapleton Prior and Pasco PC in Denver, Colorado, who has an impressive background as a litigator and arbitrator, most recently doing work with corporate matters. I am delighted to welcome Tom Betty, Julie, and Theo to Resolutions Podcast today. How is everyone? Doing well, thank you. Great, thanks. Excellent, super. Good, good. So you all have such distinguished careers as ADR professionals and lawyers, and we could certainly have a podcast episode for each of you discussing your education and experience, but not everyone has reached your levels yet. And many don't know where to start in this practice, especially if they're opening their own firm. To start us off, I'd love to hear from each of you how you got started as an arbitrator or a mediator and what compelled you to move in that direction. I'm happy to lead off if if you'd like. Um, I got started because in my law practice as a trial lawyer before I became a neutral, Um, I had experienced particularly mediation um, from the beginning of my career. I started practicing in the Southern District of Florida where all cases were required to be mediated um, prior to going to trial. So I have had exposure to ADR throughout my professional career and took a course in ADR when I was in law school and was intrigued by it. Um, I decided in 2009 to get the credentialing to become a mediator myself Um, and to join the INTA, International Trademark Association, um, panel of mediators, uh, where you had to have references to do it and had had to have a significant amount of coursework um, and practice 
uh, hours in with uh, certified trainers to be able to get on the panel. Um, from that beginning, I then decided um, in 2017 to change my practice full time to being an arbitrator and mediator. And at that time is when I got credentialed to um, be a FINRA arbitrator. Um, and then soon thereafter, I got credentialed to be a AAA panelist. And I also was credentialed to be uh, a neutral with the International Institute for Conflict Prevention and Resolution, CPR. Fantastic, Betty. That's really you know, interesting how your kind of transition occurred. And it sounds like slowly, but then building, building over the years. Tom, I think you were going to share with us a moment ago how you transitioned or how you found yourself as an arbitrator and a mediator. Yeah, I was sort of getting to what I had planned to be the end of my active practice as a litigator and trial lawyer and looking around for things to do. And uh, a year or two before I retired from the practice, I took a week-long course in mediation up at the Strauss Institute at Pepperdine, uh, and it was kind of an eye-opener, I would say. And from there, I think it's mostly a matter of uh, capitalizing on personal relationships, many of them serendipitous. Uh, There's a fellow I met uh, at the um, ABA DRS spring meeting in Seattle a number of years ago. Uh, who introduced me to the Chartered Institute, which is based in the UK, uh, has an intensive certification program for arbitrators. Uh, so I did that and went through the AAA uh, training program. Um, somebody introduced me to a woman who was then the West Coast Vice President for the AAA. Uh, and it's been a number of relationships since then that kind of got me much more involved and much more heavily involved in the arbitration world. Uh, so I would say it's a combination of having a plan uh, and then capitalizing on relationships, some of which are not things you plan, some of them are. Sounds like it. And, you know, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned just a little bit ago, um, once we hear from both Julie and Theo, which is about the trainings or resources that you may have found helpful. So we're going to come back to you on that one, because I think the audience would really appreciate learning about areas that you may have found helpful. Julie, how did you make the kind of the, the transition in working to uh, in the arbitration field? Uh, well, uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm still sort of making the transition. Um, I, it was suggested to me by a colleague of mine who was opposing counsel in a complicated construction matter, which is one area that I practice a lot in, that he thought I was well-suited to be an arbitrator and that I should pursue the, the path. I, I, frankly, it had never dawned on me before. I've thought about being a judge and decided I didn't want to do that, um, but then became more intrigued about it. And he thought in particular that uh, having women arbitrators was something that was needed in the construction arena. And so I started pursuing the training in uh, the fall of 2019, uh, went to the Institute in early 2020, and then was supposed to complete my training uh, in July in New York, and of course, then the pandemic hit. And so finally was able to finish that uh, at the end of 2020. And really, I'm just sort of getting off the ground to get my practice up and running while still litigating at the same time. 
this is exciting because you're going to sit here and hear, you know, so much valuable information in real time. And certainly we have listeners who will be learning and sharing um, hopefully later with us as well as a part of feedback. But I think what's great about not only resolutions podcast, but certainly um, the dispute resolution section is that we can all kind of learn and grow and have different practice areas and, and really can develop as arbitrators and mediators and, and neutrals in a way uh, that we you know wouldn't have otherwise um, you know in, in prior years. So thank you so much for sharing that. And Theo, tell us what about you? How did you um, you know move into the role as an arbitrator and a mediator? Well, I know that transition that Julie was just talking about really well because I was uh, still practicing uh, in a law firm uh, when, like Betty, most of my cases got thrown into mandatory mediation by the courts. And I didn't know how to advise my clients. And so one of the things I started doing was learning more about mediation and arbitration. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I was also sort of interested in pursuing a, a judicial career. Uh, so I thought one of the best ways was actually to volunteer my time in the courts. Uh, in New York City, where I was practicing, there are lots of opportunities to volunteer as a small claims arbitrator, uh, or as a fee arbitrator, or even as a, um, as a mediator in the federal courts. And so that's what I did actually in the beginning to gain experience and to learn about the processes a lot more. Um, and then slowly I decided to apply for um, rosters because uh, I learned uh, that there were actually people out there who did this for a living. And I found it fascinating that you could actually earn money doing this. Uh, and so I ended up uh, getting onto a few private rosters and earning some money. And long story short is that I was still in the law firm in 2016 when I was an equity partner and realized that I was able to shed all of my litigation work and start doing nothing but ADR work. Um, the following year, I had another great year doing nothing but ADR work and in fact generated more work but ended up uh, earning less from the firm uh, because of the way equity partner formulas work. Uh, you have to pay for your share of expenses and costs and things that frankly I didn't use like paralegals and accounting staff. And so I said, you know, this is not working for me. And I told my partners that I'm gonna withdraw. And I left uh, in the beginning of 2018 uh, to sort of start my own practice. I'll add that along the way, uh, I did receive the AAA's Higginbotham Fellowship, which was a really great platform from which to jumpstart my career. And that started my relationship with the association and allowed me to uh, develop good relationships like Tom mentioned uh, that actually have been so wonderful and so robust uh, in helping me to develop my career over time. That's great. That's great. You know, the listeners can't uh, certainly see kind of the nodding of the head for those of us who have practiced. Um, you know, my experience was with a large firm uh, doing divorce and family law and the idea of, you know, there are just some things that we don't use in the ADR space that I found uh, was unnecessary when it came to litigation. And so trying to navigate, you know, some of these tools and resources as I myself transitioned to um, a mediation practice in thinking about setting up the practice and looking, for example, at practice management tools, there were a lot of resources that I ended up kind of weeding out because they were not specific to the practice. And I think that was kind of a learning curve for me to really kind of see the difference between, hey, this is what really works in this area and some of these other um, 
resources or some of the tools that I needed in litigation practice are certainly not the same. With that in mind, you know, Tom, I mentioned a moment ago about trainings or resources, which you found helpful, certainly early on, but now throughout your career, you know, what would you suggest or recommend to those aspiring ADR professionals um, when we think about kind of building on knowledge base? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the Arbitration Training Institute that I think Julie mentioned. <laughs> um, I happen to be one of the co-chairs for that this year. And um, the way I got involved in that, and for those of you who may not be familiar with it, it's a very intense program. Uh, in other, other years, it was done uh, over a two-day period. Uh, this year, it's spread over a couple of weeks because we're doing it online. Um, but I got involved in it just by attending uh, for a couple of years. Um, one of the people who were the one of the co-chairs a couple of years ago asked me to join the planning committee, presumably because I was asking a lot of questions. Um, and uh, then, you know, said, by the way, you're going to be co-chair next year. Um, so it, it's partly that, but largely, I think you get good at arbitration and good training by doing it. Uh, and by talking to other people who are doing it. I mean, I've been fortunate out here in the Los Angeles area uh, where there is a group of, I don't know, 30 or 40 uh, arbitrators who have a kind of informal meeting every month uh, to talk about sometimes legal issues, sometimes uh, practic practical questions. How do you handle this kind of situation? What do you do about that? Uh, and not only does it broaden your network, uh, which is important to sort of getting a reputation, uh, but it adds to your skill base uh, and your, your knowledge base. So that's what I would encourage people to do. Get really involved in things like uh, the dispute resolution section, uh, your local state bar association uh, dispute resolution uh, organizations or other kind of ad hoc things. That's great. And Julie, you know, we know that you're kind of transitioning and this is new territory for you. Anything that you have found in addition, of course, to the Arbitration Institute, which has been helpful for you? Uh, absolutely. So after my initial, um, the initial suggestion to me by one of my colleagues, I connected with um, a mentor of mine who I think is working with Tom on the Institute now. And he's also here in Denver and we get together uh, maybe once a month and have lunch. And he's telling me uh, kind of war stories without identifying the people's places and things, but just kind of the, the process that he goes through when he's on a panel of three or um, when he's got lawyers that may be of better or lesser quality in presentation and how he really just handles the logistics of the arbitration. And that is, to me, is just extremely helpful. I'm constantly sitting at lunch trying to, you know, write down all my notes so I can remember five years from now when I get the dynamic that looks like the one he described, how do I handle that? Um, so the mentorship has been really, really helpful for me. That's fantastic. And, you know, I think we heard Theo say getting that volunteer experience, trying to, you know, kind of build up your own comfort and your rhythm, and you can get that through just volunteering um, and just getting that practical experience. So, you know, as we all know, there's a different skill set required for dispute resolution, say, versus litigation. And Betty, in your experience, you know, can you practice as an arbitrator and an advocate in a, in a law firm at the same time? 
I did it briefly. Um, I think you can. I think the issue if you're in a law firm is conflict. Um, that's, that's the principal um, stumbling block, in my opinion, to continuing to do this in a law firm setting. Because the key to um, arbitrations and arbitrators um, is disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. Right. So the bigger the firm, the more partners you have, the more potential conflict. So that, that I think is a potential problem, but it's, it's, it's doable in terms of the two types of practices aren't um, irreconcilable. Theo, was that what you started to see when you were kind of navigating both litigation side as an equity partner and then really taking on more ADR cases as well? Um, actually, no, because I was actually a much smaller firm, only about 25 lawyers. So the conflicts issue wasn't the problem. Uh, but I will add that there are three other problems when you're practicing both as an arbitrator and a, and a litigator, for example. Uh, the first is that on the one hand, there's a management time management problem because on the, when you're an arbitrator, you're the one setting the schedule. But at the same time, if you're a litigator, you're having a judge tell you where you have to be. And so you don't have a lot of control over your own schedule when you're being pulled in two different directions. Um, the second thing that I've noticed being in a law firm is that aside from conflicts, there's a notion that you can't leverage. Uh, people retain uh, arbitrators because they want the arbitrator's service. They're not retaining your associates also and your helpers and assistants. And so even if you disclose them, they're not likely to hire them too. That means that as a partner in a law firm, you can't leverage down work to associates, which is a typical model that most law firms operate on. And the third problem is, is rate setting. Um, you know, at the marketplace doesn't recognize arbitrators at the same level as a high performing trial lawyer. And so the rate that you normally would charge for your litigation services is not typically the same rate you could charge as an arbitrator. Um, so I think those are some of the problems that you encounter. And I did encounter some of those other problems, not the conflicts ones when I was practicing. Uh, but I think you can, and that's why you see a lot of people ultimately leaving the law firms and starting their own practices as arbitrators or mediators. I want to second the comment on rates because one of the stumbling blocks that I had initially was um, because I do do intellectual property uh, mediation and arbitration is I tried to set my rate for ADR the same as I had my rate as a trial lawyer. And that was a real impediment. It, it took somebody finally at AAA to say, you know, you, you just can't charge that um, since you've only been arbitrating for three years. You know, the fact that that's what you charge as a trial lawyer, even if it's the same kind of subject matter, just doesn't translate. So when I reduced my rate, um, remarkably, I got a lot more cases. Um, so that was an important lesson. I love that. And, you know, one of the things that we'll certainly get into when we think about opening your own business are things like the billing rate and, and marketing. And Tom, you know, I'd love to hear from you, certainly out in California, about the idea of the billing rate and how you navigated that when you were opening your firm and your practice. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I did because it's sort of the flip of what Betty was talking about. Uh, I basically took my billing rate when I retired uh, from a very large international law firm, uh, not like Theo's where we, I had a lot of conflict issues. Um, and I said, I'm gonna start billing at about a third of that you know, last billing rate that I had on the theory that 
you know, a third of the billing rate went for expenses, a third for uh, firm profit, and a third for overhead and things like that, and distribution to partners. Um, and I was working on a panel with a uh, lawyer who had been a client at one time. And he said to me, you know, your billing rate's way too low. Uh, people will think you're not worth very much. Uh, and so I, so I ramped it up and I've continued to do that. Uh, it's higher than some, lower than others. Uh, so you're kind of looking for a sweet spot. Um, you know, and, and to some degree, I think it depends upon what the market is like where you are. Uh, if you're you know, in, the, in, in the California or in the New York City area, Washington, DC, Chicago, um, market rates generally are a little higher. So nobody's gonna blink very much. But if you're brand new at this and you go out at you know, $800 an hour, uh, somebody's gonna say, really? Uh, I can get somebody who's been doing this for 20 years for less than that. Uh, so be sensitive to what the market is like, is what I would say. Neither too high nor too low. Goldilocks is what you're looking for. Absolutely. I would actually add to that your practice area, right? What's your, what is the kind of the, the rate in your, yeah. in your practice area? Because, you know, the going rate um, for a divorce mediator or arbitrator can look very different from someone who is in um, IP or construction. And so I'd say, you know, be kind of mindful of what are people willing to not just pay, but what are other mediators or arbitrators who have more experience than you? What are what are their rates? And you know, we talked about the idea of mentorship, and I think it's important to identify a mentor who can help you and guide you by saying, you know, you are coming in a little low or you're coming in a little high. For my own experience, you know, I wasn't sure what I should, what my billing rate should be. I had practiced uh, divorce and family law for, you know, 15 plus years and was very well known in the litigation space and knew kind of what the going rate was for, you know, large firm in the family law world. But that became very different when I transitioned to full-time mediation practice. And so I had the good fortune of reaching out to colleagues and, and um, asking, you know, What's the going rate? And then kind of finding what I found to be the sweet spot um, for me. But we've talked a little bit about kind of, you know, billing rates, which certainly is important because that's how we make money. But we know that you can be the best, you know, arbitrator and mediator in the world, but it doesn't matter if no one knows who you are. Right. So, you know, since everybody has their own kind of marketing style and we certainly have uh, many of you from varying places, I'd love to hear from each of you, you know, what has helped you as it relates to marketing and what have you found to be beneficial or those things that haven't worked very well? You know, Julie, I'll start with you. I know you're still kind of navigating this space a little bit, but love to hear, you know, what you've been able to do as far as marketing is concerned. Um, you know, it's a really interesting question because for somebody who's just getting off the ground, um, I, I feel very proficient at marketing myself as a litigator and have had a lot of success at doing that. Um, when I first started investigating becoming an arbitrator, I didn't even put those two things together. Didn't even really think to myself, boy, I have to think about how do I, how do I generate business? Um, and, and so the first thing that I did was uh, meet with the regional 
director for my area for um, AAA who manages the construction book and just sat down, went down to Phoenix, sat down, had lunch with them and just kind of picked his brain and said, okay, help me, help me understand how do I do this? And he had lots of ideas and, you know, some of it is internal facing with AAA, some of it is external facing, I think. Um, and so from there, went to the Institute and again, did some of that networking with the um, folks that were there, some of the senior people that were there, just to kind of make those initial connections. And, um, and it's been really interesting. I've had several of my colleagues in Denver now come up to me, you know, sort of after the fact and say, hey, I put your name on our list. You didn't get picked for one reason or another, but I'm hearing, you know, at least that I am getting um, selected by people out there. I did actually just get my first assignment, I think last week or the week before. So it's going well, I know, I'm excited. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, you know, Theo, I think you talked a little bit earlier just about kind of getting out there, making that um, kind of at the forefront, getting yourself out there. Can you talk to us about how you have found marketing yourself as an arbitrator and a mediator maybe different than when you were with a firm? Well, the principal difference really is that when you're talking about marketing in the ADR space for a neutral, it's really about branding because it's about you as the brand. They're hiring you to be the arbitrator or the mediator. And so it's a different kind of marketing than when you were part of a large firm and you were relying upon the firm's brand and name recognition. It's all about your profile and reputation now. So you have to think a little more strategically about the areas of work that you want to get uh, pointed in and also then find ways to enhance and raise your own profile in the marketplace. Uh, so the things that have worked for me uh, are things like being aggressive about speaking engagements. Uh, speaking engagements are wonderful opportunities for people to see you actually in action, right? Seeing you live either on Zoom or in person. Um, and you can definitely come off as an expert uh, in your field uh, because of, of the substance that you provide uh, during those speaking engagements. Uh, secondarily, our writing uh, projects, right? Any kind of writing for publications. Again, an opportunity for you to show off your writing skills, especially if you're going to be an arbitrator, as well as to show off your expertise in particular areas. Um, and both in terms of speaking and writing, you want to be strategic about where you do them. Uh, in front of which organizations. Um, I'm very well aware of who my marketplace is and who does the selecting. So I'm always targeting places where other attorneys are going to be. Uh, I don't do as much speaking in front of other EDR neutrals, although uh, to echo what Julie said, it's very important to do both internal and external facing marketing uh, because uh, other ADR neutrals can be sources of referral work as well as uh, selection for chair positions on panels. Uh, but the vast bulk of your cases, if you're going to be a single arbitrator, is going to come from attorneys and in-house counsel. That's who I tend to market to. Um, the other things that have worked for me uh, include, uh, I'm an adjunct professor at New York Law School. Uh, adjunct for teaching is another way in which you show off your expertise in a particular legal area. I happen to teach ADR courses, so that's another way I can demonstrate my expertise in the ADR space. Um, taking leadership positions uh, in organizations like the ABA or your local state bar association, DRS or AIPLA and other organizations, these are great places for you uh, to demonstrate you know, your leadership and thought leadership uh, in, in, the, in the, either the specific field 
like I've been an officer in the copyright society for many, many years now. So in a particular space, like a field that you're practicing in or within the ADR space, if you are an officer in ADR and organization. And finally, the thing that I've been doing recently is actually uh, sponsoring conferences. Uh, so, you know, I run a business, the ADR office of Theo Chang. So I, I, as my business, will sponsor a conference or sponsor a particular panel program. And that's just a wonderful way to reach a ton of eyeballs uh, with your logo. And I did a whole rebranding recently with my new logo. Uh, so it's a great way to get your name out there. Uh, especially like, for example, in the Copyright Society, I think I'm pretty much the only ADR neutral in that group. Uh, so, if, you know, if I'm the only one talking about ADR and someone needs ADR services, they're likely to think of me because I'm out there in that group. Those are really helpful tips. And I think, you know, you've covered a lot of really helpful aspects of how to market. I think sometimes people find themselves convinced that they can only do it one way, but it you really have to find what works for you. And I think what comes across is the authenticity of what you're actually doing. And so to your point, Theo, of the you're selling yourself, I think it's important to get yourself out there front and center. Betty, you know, you're licensed um, in several different jurisdictions. You know, how have you found that to be a benefit when you were uh, thinking about, you know, from a marketing perspective, knowing that you can certainly um, speak to varying laws depending on the jurisdiction, whereas others may not have that same expertise? Actually, that's not been something that I've found that I've drawn upon really at all, because a lot of the areas that um, I'm a neutral in, which is intellectual property, that's pretty much federal law. And I also do a fair amount of employment law, which is mostly federal law. Um, so the, the different jurisdiction aspect really hasn't been that critical, except that, you know, it's made me aware of potential differences in how different jurisdictions handle the law and as an arbitrator, you use the law of the state that's in the contract. So you may be arbitrating based on the law of a state that you're not admitted in. So if you know that there are significant differences between states, that can help. Um, but I wanted to touch for a second on, on what Theo said. I agree about speaking to groups and groups that could hire you. But one of the other things that I think is important um, and, and also being a leader in organizations. I'm currently the vice chair of the American Intellectual Property Law Association ADR committee. I'm a past um, chair of the International Trademark Association's North American um, subgroup for their ADR committee. So I think that's important to get your name out, but I also will often go and attend, particularly since it's COVID times, Zoom sessions for different CPR groups um, just to get out there and have my name out there with other neutrals. They, some things are for members only, but some things they invite uh, neutrals to join. So if I have the time and the ability to do it, I go do it just to get my name out there. That's great. And you know, you touch on uh, technology and the importance of technology. And Tom, you know, in your practice over the years, how important has technology been in, you know, in the practice and what changes have you seen, say, within the last year um, that would really lean on the technology being a big part of ADR on a going forward? Well, the, the, the biggest change over the last year is 
uh, everybody's doing things on Zoom or you know, various alternative platforms like Zoom. Uh, and you know, I, I expect that's going to continue. I mean, I've done a number of cases over the past year, uh, you know, complete hearings that have been held on Zoom. Um, and it works well. Uh, it's not perfect, uh, but it works well. It has some advantages and some disadvantages. Um, I will add two other things about sort of technology uh, and, and the way you make sure that you're getting noticed. One is whether you're going to have a website or not. You know, if you're with a law firm that's already taken care of for you, I suppose. Uh, but when I got into this, I concluded I should have a website, even if nobody except me ever looks at it. Because if somebody does look for it and you don't have it, they kind of scratch their head and say, well, how come there's no website here? Uh, so if you do that, either get somebody to help you do it uh, or make sure if you're going to do it yourself, make sure it's you've had some given some thought to how you're going to do it, that it says what you want and not what you don't want. And it looks good. Um, the other thing I will, I will encourage people to do, um, and again, this is things that I was told about, is take a long, careful, tough look at your resume, uh, weed out what isn't important, uh, and be aware that when provider groups like the AAA or like JAMS or CPR or others like that, when they are going through their data to look for people to put on a panel, they're doing word searches. Uh, by and large. And so you want to make sure that the keywords in the areas that you want your practice to be in, where your experience is, uh, either prior experience or that you've gained since you went down the ADR path, that that, key, that experience is reflected in how you articulate uh, what your expertise is in. Uh, so do pay attention to the resume. That's really helpful. And I would certainly add to that, you know, you don't have to, I think, be um, super tech savvy, but to Tom's point, at a minimum, having some type of presence, whether it's a website or whether you have an updated LinkedIn profile, because we know that both clients as well as, um, you know, potential colleagues are looking um, for information about us in these, in, in these ways. And so I think it's really important to make sure that that information is updated and that you are self-branding in a way that is beneficial to you. You know, Theo, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the ability to um, dictate your schedule as an arbitrator. And so I'd love to hear from you, you know, other than kind of just dictating your own schedule, what have you found to be, you know, the best part of owning um, your own ADR practice? And maybe it's marketing, maybe it's, you know, uh, investing in, in great uh, tech resources, um, or maybe it is the scheduling, but love to know from you, what have you found to just be so great about opening and having your own practice? Uh, what a great question. Uh, there's so many great things. I mean, I think the scheduling obviously is is a great one. I have two young children. Uh, so being able to spend more time with them, being able to do the drop-offs and the pickups, that's huge to me to spend time with family. And be, having control over your own schedule is part and parcel of that. Uh, but more importantly, I think, than that is also the notion that you have complete autonomy. Um, you are running your own business. Uh, you get to decide which cases you want to take or not take. Uh, you get to dictate schedules when you want to you want to have mediations or not have mediations. If I want to keep a day free, I can do that. Um, I'm not beholden to anybody else. 
you know, I'm not reporting to anybody else. I'm not working for someone else. That freedom uh, is actually something I never experienced until I opened up my own practice. Um, it's also the freedom to customize and design the business you want to customize, right? So if you want to have technology surrounded by technology, if you want to have ring lights and all the bells and whistles of, of a Zoom platform around you, yeah, you can do that um, or not. Um, you can farm that out to other people. Uh, if you want to have people on staff to help you out, like I almost uh, hired an admin assistant a couple of years ago. I ultimately decided not to, but that was something I considered for a little while. Uh, and also an IT professional, whether I wanted an IT professional on staff at my business. But, you know, it's these kinds of decisions uh, that you don't have when you're not the owner of your own business. Uh, and I think that freedom and luxury is something that uh, I really, really appreciate now. That's great. Julie and Betty, you know, as women in ADR space, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, the kind of involvement of women um, and the increase of women as arbitrators and on panels. And, you know, what changes you have seen? Certainly, Betty, you've been um, practicing as an arbitrator for a while. And Julie, you know, what experiences have you had being welcomed kind of into the ADR uh, community um, as, as a female? Well, I would, there's still a long way to go is, is where I'll start out with that. It's, um, you know, the, the organizations, particularly the providers are more aware of the fact that this has been um, a non-diverse group for a long time and that they are trying to put out lists that have greater diversity, um, both through ethnicity, through gender and, you know, all different types of diversity. So, but it's definitely a work in progress. And I still see, I don't see that many women being selected and chosen. You know, I think, you know, to your point of, we've got a long way to go. I think having conversations like this um, and, you know, having women like Julie, who's saying, you know, it wasn't on my radar to do this. And then someone recommended that I look into it. And now I've, you know, jumped into, into this, um, you know, Julie, what do you, what do you hope to, to find, um, as a practice and, and, you know, certainly as, as a female in this, in this space? Um, well, in large part, what I hope to find is what I'm hearing for a lot from, you know, the other participants on this podcast, um, which is to transition out of litigation, transition into just doing arbitration, be able to control my schedule. Um, honestly, you know, in the wake of COVID, I'd like to go live in Italy for six months and do arbitration from there on Zoom, if I can make that happen. Uh, that's sort of my, you know, fantasy. Um, but I, I also, um, I got very active in a women's lawyer group that was associated with a defense bar organization and found it was an incredibly dynamic uh, experience and fulfilling not only to make those connections, but to refer business amongst one another. And I'd like to see something like that in the arbitration sphere, whether it's set up as a mentoring program or just a round table, kind of like this, but in particular to help women, um, you know, progress as, 
uh, as we advance in the process of, of becoming arbitrators. Great. And, you know, Tom, I'm going to close out the discussion for the moment, um, throwing it at you as it relates to COVID in this last year. You know, we know that so much has happened, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in the world, but in particular in the legal uh, community. You know, how do you think on a going forward, ADR has, will have changed as a result of, um, you know, coronavirus and the impact that it had on just kind of the larger kind of legal community? That's a broad question. Uh, I, I guess in a, in a number of ways, a number of thoughts I offer. Uh, one is I think people are chomping at the bit to get together again. And it's not just, you know, in the ADR world, it's just generally, I think we've all missed being together with people. Um, you know, there was a story in the New York Times this morning, an op-ed piece about how we missed touching each other. I mean, physically touching each other. Uh, so I think there's that. And as people are able to do that more, it facilitates the networking building that we've been talking about here. Number two, um, I don't think the online environment is going to go away in part because it saves a lot of money. Uh, you know, if you talk to the corporate community, their travel expenses have shrunk a lot. You know, they're going to go back up, but maybe not nearly as much. And for things like, you know, witnesses who are out of town, uh, if you don't have to travel halfway across the country uh, to do a deposition or to conduct a hearing, and you can do it online, and people have gotten pretty good at it by now, uh, you know, that aspect is going to continue. And so I encourage both arbitrators and counselors, advocates, to be flexible about that and think about ways to be efficient in it. Uh, and and the, the last thing I would say, I guess, is that uh, the experiences that we've had over the past year, both COVID-related, um, you know, we just passed the anniversary of George Floyd's death. Uh, I think all of those experiences have kind of shaken up thinking in uh, what I'll call the business world. Uh, to address in a more thoughtful way the kinds of things that uh, Betty and Julie were talking about. Uh, you know, how, how do you improve the diversity uh, in the people who are deciding your cases? Uh, you know, there are a number of people in the general counsel community, for example, I think, who are focused much more carefully now on telling their lawyers in-house and outside, uh, we want to see people who reflect our customers. Uh, and our customers are they're male and female, they're different races and ethnicities. Uh, so I think you're going to see much more of that. Um, whether that inclination holds past the next year or two, you know, we'll see. Uh, but I think you should see a lot more of that going forward. And people who are in the arbitration professional part of that community uh, should be encouraging that. I think that's great. You know, Tom, Betty, Julie, and Theo, thank you so much for your time today. This has really been helpful and informative. And I know that many of our listeners are certainly going to benefit from the information that you have so freely shared. Thank you for your continued support of the ABA dispute resolution section. And we'll make sure that your um, information is in the podcast show notes. 
It has been my pleasure to host this discussion. My hope is that we will continue uh, to have these type of conversations, whether in round table or in person uh, on a going forward, because I think we are all so much better as a community when we are able to share information that we have each learned. So thank you for listening to Resolutions. Please join us for other episodes as we engage in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community.